Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Deep Dive Books podcast. On this episode, we will be discussing an essay from Emil Chioran's book, The Temptation to Exist. Emil Chioran was a philosopher, aphorist, and essayist from Romania who wrote in both French and Romanian. His writing is renowned for its style, aphorisms, and persistent philosophical pessimism. The essay after which the book is named is titled The Temptation to Exist. Emile introduces two categories of people at the beginning of his essay. The first type of person is one who is content to accept reality as it is. They are spectators in life's theater and do not inquire into the inner workings of fate, destiny, or the reasons for events. The fatalist mantra Everything that must be is just the way it turns out, provides a solution to all contradictions, both social and personal. They move from one affirmation to the next. They pride themselves on saying yes to every prompt that the complex drama of life presents to them. The second type of individual is the typical naysayer, someone who views affirmations as self-deceit and self-sacrifice. When we say yes, we are conceding too much, giving away too much. In giving away too much, we lose something of ourselves. Hence the point of first principle for this individual is to never take affirmations lightly. Such an individual is mortally afraid of saying yes. Though it is exhausting saying no all the time, it is not nearly as exhausting as the security that negation creates. Hence, the naysayer too will ultimately prefer assent. It is absurd, but Emil is good at pointing out the absurd to us. He states that negation is the mind's first freedom. Taken too far though, it becomes a source of servitude, an automatic habit that becomes detrimental. It impedes us from truly engaging with life. Negation to Emil, one can infer from this essay, is an attempt to remain aloof from the irresolvable choices that we are compelled to make. Emil believes this to be the incorrect approach to life. If something of us is compromised and lost in the business of living, well, so be it. The only way to avoid the contagion of nothingness is to allow this loss to welcome it as a necessary exchange with the world. The virtues of hope and patience are championed in our societies, but these virtues are spurned by what Emil calls the man of pride. This is someone who will not wait for the culmination of things. Every event must be accelerated, and if his nature must be distorted in the impatient advance of some objective, then so be it. When the limits of such an individual's impatience are exhausted, a sort of bitterness starts to set in, and he abdicates his existence. Such an experience leaves him all too lucid. He develops a sort of inner clarity that is admirable, but he does so at the cost of being able to love either himself or others. This, as we will find out later, is the man or woman who has been touched by nothingness sees all too clearly the complete futility of things. Emile also mentions another type of person, 
someone who has vanquished their fears. They have a grace that triumphs over all things terrible. Someone who has discovered and surpassed his own origins, discovered in themselves the very source of light. They are independent of the external maelstroms of time and circumstance. They are self-sufficient. This, as we will find out later, is someone who has escaped nothingness, who after accepting the futility of all things, now sees the meaning of everything. Emile asks, when do we lose ourselves? When do we lose the very substance that makes us human? This, of course, cannot be answered, but we can certainly identify its effects on us. For Emile, when this happens, a void opens inside of us, one in which the idea of our destruction begins to settle itself. The void speaks to us, not through the rational transactions of language, but through sounds, echoic murmurs, muffled screams. How do we respond to them? Fear, nostalgia, and paralysis may be one set of responses, Another may be an insistence to preserve our life anew. The dark confection of fears that arise out of the void for Emile have the potential to become tyrannical idols. It is not the fear of death that is horrific, but the fears that ride on its back, fears that swell and spill over into the world around us. This to Emile is precisely where we lose our identity not in the contemplation of death, but in being unable to restrain the anxieties that we generate around the idea of death. For Emile, the question of death as we perceive and experience it cannot necessarily be ameliorated by questions of biology or dogma. Whether we die because of biological reasons or original sin may have absolutely no bearing on the personal reality of our death. Those who develop a sense of personal ownership over their death and live with the understanding that life is an ensemble of functions for bearing us toward it, i.e. death, become, in a sense, liberated. For a meal, we are fully human and fully alive when the great void of fear is used as a springboard to live effectively. We are fully human when we begin to see the possibilities that questions around non-existence can provide to us. To live any other way for a meal is to live like a puppet, someone who has become an object furnished with a self, forever remaining insensible to the creative liberation that a personal realization of death can achieve. We must never abandon the void or forget that it exists. Doing so puts us at the peril of other more venomous and destructive fears. For Emil, there is pride to be taken in the fragility of our identity. The fact that it is so close to utter ruin is precisely why we have surer access to it. There is something comforting in death to Emil, if we perceive it constructively. It potentially sublimates nothingness into the absolute and thereby calls us to engage in some sort of commitment towards the absolute. Focusing on the material fact of death will never be able to speak to our fears. 
the biological conclusion of a decaying and annihilated body can teach us nothing about the discourse we should have around death. We need something more, quote, to rejuvenate ourselves at the contact of death is a matter of investing it with all our energies, of becoming. We must become half in love with easing death. Emil uses Friedrich von Hardenberg, pen name Novalis, as a case study in dying beautifully, someone who carried his nostalgia for death to the point of sensuality. Quote, his death was a rage of happiness, one of the rarest successes of despair. Death fully realized becomes an aesthetic and sensual embrace, stripped of all its fear and bestowed with felicity. It must be stated here that Emile is not advocating suicide of any sort. In fact, he says that it is completely unnecessary, not for the reasons we may think. He says the suicide of German poet Heinrich Kleist was an unsurpassable work of art, masterpiece of taste, the beauty of which will remain unequaled. Hence, there is no point in us even trying. The question of death for Emile raises us above our customary selves. Like love, death allows us to transcend ourselves. Through the disintegrations of love and death, we are both fortified and ruined. The uncanny mysteries of love and death reveal themselves to us somewhere outside of the intellect. If seen as vitally important extensions of our human essence, part of what we are, they become more sensual. The harrowing and distressing images of death, according to Emile, find their perpetuation in the incredible avoidance of it in dying or sick people. They project death outside of themselves. They use artifices to conceal its presence and turn their defenses into doctrines. People around them, healthy people, end up playing the same game. They too will use all sorts of distractions to obscure the imminence of death. The mystic may fare no better for Emile, because to the mystic, death is seen as a springboard, a means to achieve some sort of union with the fountainhead of all existence. In all these cases, states Emile, death becomes an accident or a means. It is never acknowledged as a real presence in our lives. Emile states there is no master criteria for understanding the inner significance of death. The interpretations of the mystic and the sick are all valid. Where there is no certainty, every type of certainty abounds. In the questioning, contemplating, and experiencing of death, we are con confronted with the fact that death is not a postponed eventuality lying somewhere ahead in the future, but is in fact an imminent experience. The secret time of death is in a constant state of intersection with apparent time i.e. the live and immediate time that we are always experiencing. It is this secret time of death that we are always preparing for. Cultures and civilizations have their own aesthetic protocols around it, and it imposes this on its members. A culture's rules of extinction are followed even by the most iconoclastic of its members. Emile gives examples of the Elizabethans and German romantics, to them, death was a cosmic phenomenon, an incredible creative force 
through which man must forever be in a state of intimacy with. For the French, death was an opportunity of preserving one's reputation, of dying decorously and parading agony with presentational brilliance. The historical representation of death for Emile, as fascinating as it may be, does not really help us to understand it. History to Emile is an inessential mode of being, a form of infidelity. The metaphysics of death will not reveal themselves to us through history. We must look for the truth of death somewhere else. The imagery that Emile uses is that of a desert, one in which the hermits of the world flock to, to experience a sort of motionless flow. To be able to hear the inner tonality of death, Emile suggests that we create an internal desert. It is here, in this non-space, that the secrets of death reveal themselves to us, not through rational observations, but in the form of desire, disgust, horror, and rapture. It is here that we experience the breaking wave of death, the inimitable beauty of the primordial mystery, one that opens the world to the dynamic motion of creation and decomposition. Emile states that during his adolescence, in giving himself over completely to the question of death, he saw in all things the mark of death's sovereignty. In a particularly startling section, he writes, the void was my Eucharist, everything within me, everything exterior to me, transubstantiated into a ghost. The nothingness that Emile experienced, he states, produced a lucidness and one that supplanted reality. It is precisely at this point that he fights for the reestablishment of reality. He fights to impose a soul upon himself and find a world for himself, whatever the cost. When we rise from the abyss, a miracle of being is experienced. Existence becomes an incredible state of exception. We must force an entrance into it. Emile states that people who have come back from the abyss are turncoats of lucidity, people illuminated by the void and are initiates in the order of nothingness. They are turncoats because they have chosen the indignities of life over nothingness. This is Plato's allegory of the cave inverted. There is a joy, a madness, a fear that comes from making a definitive ascent, an ascent to turn back towards the world. This for Emile is a fatal yes. This is a fatal ascent, a fatal choice to remain and participate in all the psychoses and fatalities of the world. Our source of energy is our madness, states Emile. Delirium is the antidote to dread and doubt. Let us begin anew. Reflect the cosmogenic brilliance of the universe. Let us radiate time. Let us become the sun. Let us participate in the breathtaking manifestation of things. Coming back from the void, everything becomes unexpected, surprising, a gallery of miracles. This is a beautiful state to be in. But unfortunately, our fascination with agony ensures that after experiencing the world anew, 
we relapse back into panic and disgust. This is not the end of things, though, Emil states. We can use this experience to elevate ourselves. In the image of the first hermits of Christianity, we can become survivors in the desert. Emil states that these hermits were not weaklings. Their ferocity of discipline is to be admired. These obsessed saints militantly combated the dearest of any human being's possessions, their vanities and their temptations. They understood the rage, the, the rage of desire in a way that no hedonist or libertine ever could. They were larger than mythological gods because they understood that loathing turned inwards could be a very potent emotion. Our natural sufferings to Emil are always in need of intensification and outward expression. This is where we create others for ourselves, personas to which we direct our rage. Emil states, if we attended more to ourselves and became the center, the object of our murderous inclinations, the sum of our intolerances would diminish. For Emil, like the monks and hermits, there is an incredible kindness rendered to society when we exercise cruelty on ourselves instead of subjecting other people to it. The technique of the desert, states Emil, is turning our talons inward. This, of course, sounds incredibly horrible. We shudder at the imagery of it. Why exalt these practices? Emil states that as distasteful as he finds the early church hermits and monks, he cannot help but admire them. He wonders how it is possible for such a conviction of will to exist in a world such as ours. Is this the secret to the success of religion? That far from being the truth of things, it is in fact a protest against the truth of things. The deeper point made by Emile is that to exist is equivalent to an act of faith. There is no fundamental difference between the believer and the unbeliever in this regard because both consent to live. This is why Emil believed that everything participates in a religious essence. The act of faith required by the believer is equally required by the unbeliever. Whatever ground we stand on lasts only so long as our fictions. No one is exempt from this because everyone who is alive is consciously or unconsciously in the process of making the greatest of all affirmations. Yes. Yes to the incoherent and bewildering experience of being alive. If we say yes to life, then we accept its incompatibilities. We accept to remain in the thick of a dizzying array of pain and pleasures. And we accept to preserve the energies that sustain and stimulate our death. Emile states that we must be vigilant at the intrusions that common sense will make, for it will reveal the entire absurdity of our mission, the absurdity of fighting to oppose a soul on ourselves. Here we must learn to think against our doubts and against our certainties. We must create another conception of death, one that is beyond what death means in biological terms. This is the idea that something undemonstrable beyond the body exists. Thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode. Cheers from all of us.
at the Deep Dive Podcast.